Well, let's turn to the book of Exodus, and strangely, as it may seem, we'll talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit in a moment. And we're going to pick up, we're going to pick up Exodus at, at chapter 21. So what's happened is we've just had the, the Ten Commandments. Um, Moses has been up the mountain, and we'll just read a selection. I don't know whether you get to read all of these, but we'll read a kind of couple of chapters worth of, of, of the commandments that, that God gives his people. Start at, start at 21, verse 1, page 78. These are the laws uh, you are to set before them. This is what God says to Moses. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he's to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he'll go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he's to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she's to go with him. And if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. And then he'll be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she's not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. And if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she's to go free without any payment of money. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it's not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. If people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim doesn't die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with the staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. An owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull won't be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had a habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or a woman, the bull is to be stoned and its owner is also to be put to death. However, if payment is demanded, the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded. This law also applies if the bull gores a son or a daughter. And if the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave and the bull is to be stoned to death. 
If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. If anyone's bull injures someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the owner didn't keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and take the dead animal in exchange. I hope you're finding this useful and kind of um, um, instructive. If your bull has a habit of goring, please go home. Pen it up, okay. A little bit more. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. It's interesting. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns sheaves of corn or standing corn on the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives neighbour silver or goods for safekeeping and they're stolen from the neighbour's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief isn't found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, donkey, a sheep, a garment or any other lost property about which someone says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges and the one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. Let's move down to verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price of virgins. Don't allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you are foreigners in Egypt. Don't take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Verse uh, 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, don't treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Verse 28, don't blaspheme God or curse the rule of your people. Don't hold back offerings from your granaries or, or your vats. And if we go into chapter 23, don't spread false reports. Don't help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Don't follow the crowd in, in, in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, don't pervert justice, justice by siding with the crowd. And don't show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey or, of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Don't deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. Don't put an innocent or honest person to death. Don't accept a bribe. Verse 9, don't accept a foreigner. Then Sabbath laws, verse 10 um, to 13. Must be a Sabbath year every seven. Uh, verse 14, three annual festivals. Um, down to chap- uh, verse 20 in, in chapter 23. 
See, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Don't rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Peritzites, Canaanites, Hivites and Jebusites and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away disease from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. Then a bit about sending his terror ahead of them and a bit about establishing their borders. But don't make a covenant with them or their gods. And then in chapter 24, an amazing thing happens, which um, Andy Savile says, he said to me the other night, just a couple of weeks ago, he reckons this is the high point of the whole Bible. Not sure whether you agree, but you'll, you'll uh, see what happens. Uh, the Lord calls Moses up onto the mountain and they are to bring um, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders. So in verse 4, Moses got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars and then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, put it in the bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it to the people. And they said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And listen what happened. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. How many people across scripture see God in this way? Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Isn't that amazing? They went on top of the mountain. God revealed himself. They saw God and they ate and drank. Let's pray and then let's see if we can make sense of all those laws. Father God, this is your word, and we ask you to speak to us this morning. These people saw you and ate and drank. What an amazing communion they had with you. And Lord, we want to commune with you this morning. We're asking you to speak to our hearts as we believe this to be your spirit-inspired word, useful to us. Lord, make it useful, make it powerful to us this morning because we want to be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to try and run my own PowerPoint and you know what happens when I do that. But anyway, here we go. But hopefully then we'll get through, uh, get, get through as, as quick as we can with this this morning. So God has rescued Israel, and he's rescued them to be his own people um, in relationship with him. And now they need to know how to live uh, so that they reflect God's character, so that they live in a suitable relationship with him. And we're the same. Uh, we're rescued uh, for a relationship with God. 
And we're called to be holy as God is holy. We're called to uh, reflect God's character. But how much use is the law? I mean, do you keep a bull? I suspect you don't. Do you keep a slave? I really, really hope that you don't. Okay. You've got somebody locked in your basement. That would be really scary. So what are we to make of um, what are we to make of what we've just read? Well, we just have to reflect initially that it's a different culture, isn't it? it it's an agrarian culture. It's an agricultural culture. It's very different from ours. And so what it means to reflect God's character, it, it, it's going to be different. Uh, for them, because uh, they're in a different culture. We don't really need to know a great deal about um, bull-keeping um, or looking after slaves. Slavery was actually a fact of life at the time, and I think the law takes that into account and, and makes sure that it's not abused. But at the same time, the Bible starts to lay the groundwork so that slavery would um, ultimately be abolished by the dignity that it puts on um, each human person. But more importantly than a different culture, it's a different covenant. So, okay, like them, we're rescued for relationship, but God rules his people in a very different way now than he did them. And we have to get a little handle on this before we can start to understand um, how these laws apply or don't apply um, to us. And this is the important text, and so I've stuck it up there uh, in full. So the prophet Jeremiah says... The, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And we're included as well through Christ. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So they have this covenant. We've seen them, covenant, we've seen them sit on top of the mountain and, and say, yes, we're going to do all this. But of course they didn't. And so the Lord says there'll be a new covenant, and this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people, but they won't teach each other, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Well, look at the, in the midst of that. God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So there's a difference between the Old Covenant, uh, a fundamental difference, um, that in the Old Testament the law was written on tablets of stone. And the people had the rules and, and then were expected to, to live by them, to obey them. In the New Testament the law is written on the heart. Written in and on the heart. And it's, again, it's written by the finger of God it's, uh, in the Old Testament, written by the finger of God on the tablets in the New Testament, written by the finger of God on your heart, directly. And how is that done? It's done by the Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel, God says, I'll, I'll give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the new covenant. This is New Testament religion. God says, I'll put my Holy Spirit in you, and my Holy Spirit will, will write my law on your heart. And I will move you. I will change you from the inside out. I will make you want to keep my law. And that comes because we get a new gift. For that to be a reality, then we need a new gift. We need the Holy Spirit to come in a different way, and he does. So this point where Israel um, arrives at Sinai is 50 days after the Passover. 
And in the New Testament, the Spirit was poured out 50 days after another Passover, um, after the cross. At Sinai, the mountain shook. You remember what happened at Pentecost, the room where the, those first believers uh, were meeting together shook. At Sinai, we, we, again here we see God come down on the mountain in fire. Well, at Pentecost, tongues of fire came and rested on, on the individual believers. So, so Pentecost is this new giving of the Spirit, and in a sense it's a new law giving. The old law giving was on the tablets of stone. This new law giving was written on the heart. Because of Pentecost, the very presence of the living God comes to live in believers. And that's an amazing thing, and Brian was just reminding us about that this morning. If you're a believer in Christ today, then the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, lives in you. And that gives us a new way of living. Paul says we serve in a new way of the Spirit and are not in the old way of the, of the written code. So the law gives written external standards and they don't work because we can't keep them. So the law doesn't work, not because the law is wrong. There's nothing wrong with the law and its commands, but what's wrong is with us. We can't do it that way. We can't be given the law uh, and, and keep it because we're just too corrupted. And so this new way of the Spirit, God puts his Spirit in us to make us want to, as we've said, live it out and gives us the power to change and be different. And so um, Tim Chester says it's a little bit like, you know, when, a little bit like growing up. You know, when you were a, you were a kid and um, so your mum or your dad said, um, don't go out of my sight, you know, when you were walking down the street. Or whatever, just don't, don't leave my sight. Or they were saying, you, you ask before you, le- you leave the table. When you've grown up, you don't do that anymore. At least, you know, I, I, you know, I don't imagine you do. Okay, why do you not ask to leave the table? Because you have learned over time when it's appropriate. Okay, what appropriate table manners are and when it's appropriate to get up and down. That, that law uh, about what's right and wrong has been internalised so it's become part of your character and part of your knowledge. And that's what the Spirit wants to do. Wants to take that law, what that's right and wrong, and, and make it just part of your heart and, and, and part of your character. And so you don't ask your parents when it's right or wrong to cross the street because you've learnt those things and you've internalised that law for yourself. And that is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. We need to just pick one more thing and then we can see what we do with these laws. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have a new kind of kingdom. God doesn't rule his people through a state anymore. God's, the church and the state are, are now separate. God's kingdom and his, his direct rule of his people uh, through Christ, and that's made visible in the church. God uh, hasn't chose uh, his people to be a nation anymore in the same way. So the enforcement of laws for good public order are, the, are primarily now the responsibility of the state. So the state ha- still has the right to make war state, um, still has the right to enforce punishment, I think, from Romans 13. But of course, the principles on which even our state kind of make those kind of rules are, are based in many ways um, upon the Bible and things that we've seen. I don't know whether you've noticed this as we've read this morning. So we've seen about responsibility, people taking responsibility for their actions, um, proportionality, 
that's the meaning of an eye for an eye. It gives a limit to how far punishment can go. This doesn't, you can't take out vengeance. Uh, just multiplying vengeance upon vengeance. So these principles, responsibility, proportionality, dignity of people, uh, and mercy kind of inform, um, inform the law giving of our country, even though it's not our direct responsibility to enact or enforce them. But of course, we have, being a democracy, we have the ability and the responsibility of, of influencing government. So all of that, really by way of trying to get to this question, what then, how, when you read a passage like this, what use can you, uh, as a Christian, as a New Testament believer, uh, make of the laws? And I want to make these few suggestions. Okay, when you come to war laws, realise that we're, we're still in a battle, but just that it's a different kind of battle. We're in a battle with Satan, with sin and with unbelief, and we battle yeah, in a different way. So Paul says the weapons we, we, we fight with are not the weapons of the world. We demolish arguments, he says, and pretensions. In other words, it's a battle for hearts and minds. It's a battle that's waged in prayer. It's a, it's a battle that's waged in witness, when witness means both proclamation, both telling people the truth and, and living it out. And so we're battling, uh, whenever we read about battles in the Old Testament, then we recognise we're still in a battle, and it's still a serious battle. It's still a, seri- a battle against Satan. Satan has people under his control, and we want to liberate them through telling them the gospel. We want to recognise there's still ground to be taken in our own lives. But when we read then something like the, the little battle bit that we had today, where was that? That was from chapter 23. Then there are things we can take away. We can take away, and when you read it, just ask yourself, or just, I suppose, take this away. How serious, then, is rebellion against God? God is actually going to wipe these nations out. And, of course, we don't go out today with with sword, okay, uh, to try and persuade people. But if people are not persuaded, then then ultimately, again, God will judge them. Um, God will punish them. So the battle is, is still a serious business and there are serious consequences for those who, who stand in rebellion against God. But also I think quite often we, in, in, these, um, uh, in these battle commands we just need to see how serious God takes compromise with other religious ideas or with sin. You'll read these through and God says to them, drive them out, wipe them out, don't marry with them, don't put up with them. And what we should hear from that is God saying in your own lives, don't put up with sin. Don't just kind of come to some kind of compromise, some kind of treaty. Because sin is too serious for that. So when we read the war laws, I remember that we're in a battle and just um, take sin seriously. But there were punishment laws, or, or rather within the laws, there, there are aspects of punishment. And a couple of things, do you notice, particularly about the kind of, um, in chapters 21, there, there were two aspects of punishment. 
One was if you'd done something wrong, you'd make it right. Okay. There was kind of like punishment if you'd sinned. But if in amongst that sin you'd kind of destroyed somebody's property uh, or you'd kind of let their ball fall into a pit um, or whatever it might have been, there was restitution. There needed to be payback. And so as you read that, we need to understand two things. We need to understand the consequences of sin, that, that somebody, needs, somebody needs to pay back and somebody needs to pay the penalty. And we need to understand, as, you, as we read through the, the Old Testament, that these were laws that ultimately people were unable to obey. And use that as a place from which to rejoice in what Jesus has done. Rejoice in what Jesus has done. Do you know what he's done? On the cross, he's paid the penalty. Taken the punishment for sin. But do you know what else he's done? By living a holy and righteous life from day one, every second to the end, he has also made restitution for you. So those two aspects of what Jesus has done match these two aspects of punishment in the Old Testament. God has made restitution for you in Christ and he has paid the penalty for the wrongdoing. Jesus has done what we had no way of doing. And ultimately the punishment would have been ours, wouldn't it, before God? So you'd be really glad to know as a church we don't put people to death Though I think somebody did propose that at the last church meeting. I can't remember who it was. It was just, um... <laughs> Ultimately, if sin is serious, we still, the church still has responsibility to put people out of the church where sin is serious and completely, people are completely unrepentant. People are separated from the family of God um, as they would have been in the Old Testament. So that's what you do with war laws. That's what you do with those punishment laws. What do you do with religious laws? Well, interestingly, Romans, um, Paul says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, the law, the law of Moses and the prophets, testify to this new kind of righteousness. They testify to Christ. And so all through these commands, things that apply to the temple, that talk about blood, where blood is shed, where there are sacrifices, where there are priesthoods, they all prophesy um, about Christ. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus. So Jesus is the temple, we're told in the New Testament. Jesus is the lamb. Uh, Jesus is the high priest. So what do we do with the moral laws? And I have to say, this, this is, it sounds kind of like nice and neat, but it's not. Because in and amongst these laws that we've had this morning, there's a whole mixture of things, some of which are kind of, you might think are civil, some are moral, some are religious. Um, it's not always easy to pick them apart. But what then do we do with the moral laws? If indeed we can pick apart the moral laws. Well, here's one, here's just an example, Matthew 5. We, we had it on Sunday night, and... Jesus said, you've heard it said people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother or sister, Rakar is kind of like swears to them, uh, is answerable to the court. Well, he says, now anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fires of hell. So there's a real danger of taking those laws and using them as kind of fences 
And the problem of using the laws as kind of fences, like the do not murder, okay, uh, I haven't murdered, is perhaps that we might take an attitude of, well, how, how, how near to the fence can I get um, without actually sinning? And we, saw, we talked about this on Sunday night with, with the uh, young people in the Espresso Church. God's laws just simply don't work like that. So we tend to take this picture. If the law is like a fence, everything that leads to it is okay, and everything on the other side is wrong. Now, that's nice and straightforward um, if it's a kind of human law-like um, speed limit. Okay, I mean, it's very clear. Everything that leads up to it, 45, 55, 59 miles an hour is okay. Everything on the other side is wrong. God's laws don't work like that. So let's just take the do not murder one, for example, and let's hear what Jesus says. So we think, well, okay, everything past that gate is wrong. We're not, we're not going to murder anybody. But if everything past that gate is wrong, why would we want to even start in that direction? Why would you want to start yelling at people or hating people or abusing people or going beyond abusing to hurting or going beyond hurting to torturing people? If there's a path that leads up to that gate, why would you even want to head in that direction? In fact, we want, what we want to do is stay as far away from it as possible. So here's the do not murder command. But if you're not murdering them, well, why would you want to torture anybody? If you're not torturing, why would you want to hurt? If you're not hurting, why would you want to abuse? If you're not abusing, well, then why hate? And if you're not hating them, why yell? And in fact, the point is not just don't go to the fence. The point is to stay away as far away from the fence as you possibly can. And that means taking the initiative and fixing relationships and demonstrating to others that they're valued. In fact, the moral laws, I think, are the, are the easier part because they're very easily summed up. Jesus sums them up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbour as, as yourself. It says there's no commandment greater than these and Paul says the same thing. The entire law, the entire law, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. So there you are, whistle-stop tour of how to treat the law of Christ. Why do we want to kind of stay in a right relationship with God? Why do we need to know what the law is about? Well, look at the end result. The end result is that the elders as the representatives of the people of God, they sit down and eat in God's very presence. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So what happens there is that Moses and the, and the elders are, are confirming the covenant, the arrangement they have with Christ. And Jesus and the twelve do the same thing in the Passover, the eat before Jesus dies. And Jesus uses these words, which echo the words of Moses. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is, which is poured out for you. So each time we come to communion, we're sitting down and, as it were, eating in the presence of God. What an amazing thing. And we do that in anticipation of one day we're going to sit down, eat with Jesus in the presence of God.